4: And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, we have so much to talk about today. But first, I want to talk about policing and the whole issue with policing in the United States. In my opinion, our founders had it right. They said, control the guys with guns. At the Constitutional Convention in 1787, they put the military in a box, and that has prevented us from having a military coup over these 240-plus years, and we have to do the same thing today, frankly, with our police. Right now, today, the Supreme Court is deciding whether or not uh, police should have qualified immunity. And, you know, this is going to be fascinating, but it's probably going to be next, you know, it'll be this fall before there's, there's uh, hearings on the issue, and it'll be next spring before there's a decision we've got to do stuff right now. And uh, Minneapolis is actually leading this charge talking about uh, literally reinventing. They're using the word disbanding their police department. Now, I don't think they're going to actually just say, okay, that's it. We have no more police. Uh, sorry if your husband is beating you up or there's somebody you know, about to break into the back door of your house. Um, that's not what's going to happen. And they're working out the details of all that. But, you know, this is a start. And at the very least, Cities should require that 100% of their police come from the places that they are policing, come from the community, come from at the very least the city in which they police, and even better, from the communities which they police. And emphasize public safety. Minneapolis is talking about turning the police department into the public safety department. But there are other really important steps. You know, all across America, frankly, we need the equivalent of a legislature. Let's go back to founding principles here. How do you put together a republic? Founding principles, balance of power, separation of powers. You know, just like the legislature, the Congress is supposed to oversee the executive branch, the president, we should have local police boards or, or you know, enhance the authority and power and specific mission of parts of city councils to oversee police departments. And they should have subpoena power. They should have indictment power. Uh, they should be able to impartially rule on police actions and police matters. We also need the leadership of police departments, the top cop, what we call the chief of police. I don't know if you saw the story. this morning. I believe it was in, um, in Pennsylvania. You know, one of the chiefs of police or or senior police officers, uh, part of police management, was caught on tape beating the crap out of a protester with a billy club. And he went to court this morning. As he was going to court, a whole bunch of cops showed up to give him a round of, you know, essentially a standing ovation for beating up that protester. You know, (laughs) this is not how we should be thinking of police. Well, when the founders looked at our country, they said, who are we going to put in charge of the guys with guns? Who are we going to put in charge of the army? And they decided that it would not be the senior official at the army. It would not be the chief of the army. It would be an elected civilian, the president. Very straightforward. They also had a big debate about whether America should even have an army during times of peace. They knew that armies had been involved in all kinds of military coups going all the way back to the time of the Greeks. They didn't want to put an armed military under the control of a military official. They knew how badly that could turn out. In 1787, at the Constitutional Convention, James Madison, the guy who was basically, you know, kept all the notes for the convention, he wrote a stand, he said, actually, at the convention, but this is, you know, he wrote it also, a standing military force will not long be safe companions to liberty. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. So they said, that's it. You know, the head of the military is not going to be a military man he's going, or a woman. It's going to be, is it, back then it was man. It's going to be the president. But now we've seen those same kind of military coups that the founders and framers were concerned about at the national level happening at the local level where police departments now have become the tail that wags the dog of the entire city council and the mayor. You got Bill de Blasio scared to death of the New York police and the police union. You've got Lori Lightfoot in Chicago under attack by the police and the police union. You've got, you've got mayors all over the country in city council, well, in Minneapolis, you know, they're going after him. Mayor Fry is saying, uh, well, we're not going to totally disband the police, but, you know. And there, there are some people who are suggesting, you know, that Trump is using this already. I've gotten two fundraising email requests from Donald Trump in the last five days pointing out that Democrats are saying defund the police. Do you really want no police? You know, defund the police is probably not the phrase to use, but major reform, major reinvention from the bottom up. You know, when it came to the army, I mean, the box wasn't just that the president is the head, is the commander in chief of the military. It was also that the military cannot be funded for more than two years. It's literally the only place in the Constitution where the power of Congress to raise and spend money is limited by time. It's limited to two years. Article 1, Section 8, Congress has the power to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. Why not the same thing for police departments? Forcing city councils, forcing city governments, for that matter, forcing city voters every two years to ask themselves, do we want this police department the way it is? Or do we want to fundamentally reinvent it? You know, we need to extend that idea to police so that citizens nationwide are protected from what are clearly now far too many out-of-control police departments. This is just straightforward stuff. Here we have some of these stories of a cop who killed a 22-year-old San Francisco man. This is the cop, this is the, the police officer who fired through his windshield fired five shots at this guy because he thought that the hammer that the guy, you know, presumably was a looter. The guy had a hammer in his pocket. The police officer assumed it was a gun. So he fired through his own window. Turns out this cop, his name is Jarrett Tonn, T-O-N-N, has fired his gun four times in the last five years while on duty, including two shootings within six weeks in 2017 and a shooting in 2015 where he fired 18 times. In 2015, in 2015, police shot nearly 1,000 people in the United States, shot and killed. The same thing happened in 2016. The same thing happened in 2017. Each case, it was in the neighborhood of 1,000 people a year killed by police. Since 2015, police nationwide have shot and killed 5,400 people. And there's no official federal database of this, by the way. These are numbers compiled mostly, well, it was put together by the Washington Post. But even with the pandemic going on and people locked in their homes, police nationwide in the United States, just through the first week of June, have killed 463 people in the United States, 49 more than the same time last year. So Congress is now saying enough. The Democrats in the House of Representatives are put forth this morning the Justice in Policing Act of 2020. It would create a national database to track police misconduct. It would ban chokeholds. It would prohibit no-knock warrants and drug arrests. Karen Bass, the chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus, said that the uh, legislation has 200 co-sponsors in the House and Senate, although we have yet to hear whether Trump will support such a thing. Uh, You think? Coming back right after this break, the Internet trolls are at it again. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Between Donald Trump and a small group of internet trolls that are scaring the hell out of small towns across America, some bizarre stuff has happened over the weekend. I'll tell you about that after the break. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that Chief Justice John Roberts, back when he worked for Ronald Reagan, came up with a way that Congress and the White House could get around the Supreme Court? Specifically, they were trying to blow up uh, Roe v. Wade and Brown v. Board, but it could be used by Democrats right now. It's fascinating. It's in my new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Check it out. Thanks so much. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And I just wanted to go through some of the panic that is being spread. This is absolutely amazing. Here's two emails that Fred got from the first is from the rapid response team of Donald Trump. It's from the Trump-Pence campaign. And then the second one is from Team Trump. Okay, the first one. Fred, because you're one of the most dedicated Trump supporters we know, My team and I have some important news to share with you. Antifa has been labeled as a terrorist organization. President Trump publicly declared that Antifa, the far left group behind the looting, burning, and terrorizing in recent protests, is a terrorist organization. For years, Antifa has been trying to destroy the foundations of our free society that our brave soldiers are defending with their very lives. Antifa has been out to wreak havoc in cities across America and is instigating violence against innocent citizens and businesses. President Trump has been the only president to take a stand like this condemning their atrocities. In light of these violent attacks by being made by this terrorist group, can you please chip in some money and show your support for President Trump? Bloody bloody blah, blah. Okay, the next day I got another one. Thomas, the Democrats have lost their minds while Antifa thugs are destroying our communities and burning down our churches the radical left is shouting, defund the police. In fact, the Los Angeles mayor has proposed a $150 million budget cut for the LA Police Department. It's despicable. They must be watching the fake news, which is making it look like the killers, terrorists, arsonists, anarchists, thugs, hoodlums, looters of Antifa, and others are the nicest, kindest, most wonderful people in the whole wide world. Such lies. We can't stand by while the left tries to defund the police, etc. Well, here in Oregon, there's this little town called Klamath Falls. Klamath Falls, a beautiful waterfall. It's a town of just a few thousand people. And uh, the local hotspot in downtown is called Sugarman's Corner. 200 protesters showed up there uh, night before last in order to uh, stand with the George Floyd protests, you know, against uh, police violence. But just across the street, this is from NBC News by Bradley Zaransky an investigative reporter. Just across the street, hundreds of their mostly white neighbors were there for decidedly different reasons. They leaned in front of local businesses, the Daily Bagel and Rick's Smoke Shop, wearing military fatigues and bulletproof vests with blue bands tied around their arms. Most everyone seemed to be carrying something, flags, baseball bats, hammers, and axes, but mostly they carried guns. They had heard that Antifa, paid by billionaire philanthropists, George Soros were being bussed in from neighboring cities hell-bent on raising their idyllic town. Yeah, seriously. The, there is a Facebook page for Klamath Falls. And it's mostly, the things that get posted in there are mostly things like lost dog alerts, right? It's only, you know, people who live there. And, and Facebook has these for pretty much every community in America. And this is a Facebook live stream that showed up in Klamath Falls. As you can tell, we are ready. This had 124,000 views, by the way. Antifa members have threatened our town and said that they're going to burn down everything and kill white people. This is uh, pretty mind-boggling. Oh, the one black guy who showed up lives in Klamath Falls. And he said, a lot of these people came out because they swore that Antifa buses were in town. They couldn't believe that I was from here. They thought I must be a black man who came in from somewhere else. It was on Klamath County's local Facebook news group that some 4,800 members came to talk about the potential threat of Antifa. And then these are some of the Facebook posts. And who knows who, who put this up here. There are two buses heading this way from Portland full of Antifa members and loaded with bricks. Their intentions are to come to Klamath Falls, destroy it, and murder police officers. There have been rumors of the Antifa going into residential areas to F up the white hoods, in quotes. A direct message from Colonel Jeff Edwards, the commander of the Oregon Air National Guard's 173rd Fighter Wing, was posted in one of the groups. He wrote, quote, Team Kingsley, for your safety, I ask you to please avoid the downtown area this evening. We received an alert that there may be two busloads of Antifa protesters en route to Klamath Falls and arriving around 2030 tonight. That'd be 830 tonight, the post stated. Major Nikki Jackson, a spokeswoman for the fighter wing, confirmed that that was actually him. He says the alert was received from local law enforcement agencies here in Klamath Falls. Well, it turns out it's not just, and as the, as the day went on, the town buzzed with talk about the incoming rioters. The Antifa buses became a kind of local scavenger hunt. Someone spotted an empty green bus at Klamath Community College. A white bus with Black Lives Matters and peace signs was spotted at the Walmart parking lot. A local recognized that bus as belonging to a local musician, but others didn't buy it. Someone reported a U-Haul in front of TJ Maxx. But now this is happening all over the country, right? In Forks, Washington, locals felled trees with chainsaws to block a road, fearing that a bus filled with Antifa was heading to town. Police and 9-11 dispatchers in South Bend, Indiana were inundated with calls warning of busloads of people coming in off the toll road. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot decried a quote, concerted effort out there to misinform, end quote, after the city's police scanner repeatedly warned of Antifa buses on their way to town Saturday night. A post in Luzerne County, uh, Pennsylvania, Facebook group implored residents to protect yourselves, your family, and your businesses from a serious rumor about a group coming organized to loot and riot. This is astonishing. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe.
4: Donald Trump campaigned on nostalgia for the past. We're going to make America great again. And sure enough, he has brought us the past. He has brought back the deaths, uh, the widespread deaths associated with the pandemic of 1918. He has brought back unemployment, hunger, poverty, poverty. Uh, economic distress and despair and disaster across the nation as we saw in the Republican Great Depression of 1929. He's brought back the rise of white supremacy, and white supremacist organizations are reorganizing and reinventing themselves the way the Klan did in the 1870s after the failure of Reconstruction. He's brought back the race riots of the 1960s, once again setting our cities on fire, which raises the question, that I tossed to you. What else do you think Trump is going to bring back? Is he going to bring back another world war? We've had two of those. Is he going to bring back, you know, another smaller war with some, you know, some other country? We've had, you know, we had the War of 1812. We had a war with Canada and England. We had a war with Spain in Cuba with the Spanish American War. We had a war with Mexico. Uh, you know, is, is that is that on his agenda is he going is he going to try and bring back the civil war i i think he thought that was a great time for america only 6 700,000 americans died there he's already killed over 104,000 of us so or his negligence has led to the death of 104,000 of us while other countries you know like australia and taiwan have you know few, fewer than a couple dozen people dead in the same period of time i mean it's just what is it going to be Or is he going to take us in an entirely new direction, taking us back to the past of some other country? For example, is he going to try to repeat the rise of fascism in Europe? Is he going to make America like Italy was in 1928? Or is he going to try to bring back a military coup like Al-Sisi did in Egypt or like Pinochet did in Chile? Or is he planning on a new brutal crackdown like in Tiananmen Square? I mean, he's, this guy's still got six months to go, assuming Congress doesn't impeach him, which I think is pretty safe to assume. So between now and January, what kind of holy hell can he bring down on this country? It's frankly a very troubling question. This line of police surrounding the White House right now with their shields that they're holding and whatnot, turns out they're prison guards. He's brought federal prison riot control officers to surround the White House. Is this Donald Trump getting ready for his post-presidency? He's just kind of getting used to being surrounded by prison guards. One could hope, I suppose, our Frequent caller to the program, uh, Kenyatta, sent me a note this morning pointing out, and I, I did not know this. This uh, frankly shocked me that in the 240 year history of the United States, there's a Wikipedia category for this American police officers convicted of murder. In 240 years, how many police officers have been convicted of murder? 20. And several of them were serial killers, several of them killed their wives. A couple of them were killing people on behalf of the mob. I haven't gone through the whole entire list. when I was halfway, a little more than halfway through that list of the 20 of them, I still hadn't seen a single one who was convicted of killing a black man. Just absolutely incredible. David Sirota does a newsletter called Too Much Information, TMI. You know, David just does great work. David and I have, have worked together over the years in radio. He used to be involved with Air America radio. He used to have a show on our Air America affiliate in Denver. And he has a list of things that we should be doing right now. And I, I, I want to share this with you because I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. A list of things that we could do to deal with the crisis right now that we have of these police riots. I mean, you know, we saw the police riot in 68 in Chicago. We're now seeing police rioting all over the United States. The vast majority, of, in fact, I would say probably close to 100 percent of the violence inflicted on persons across the United States over the past eight days has been done by police officers. And so David Sirota has some suggestions and Bernie Sanders has some suggestions. Actually, let me go through Bernie's suggestions first. Bernie has just proposed legislation. He wrote about this in a letter to uh, Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer. He said we need to, and these are the bullet points in his letter. Number one, we need to amend federal civil rights laws to allow for more effective prosecution of police misconduct. Uh, Right now, the standard for prosecuting a police officer is willfulness. We need to change that to to recklessness. Number two, we need to abolish qualified immunity. I, I wrote an op-ed about this that was published uh, yesterday in uh, Alternat. It went up on L.A. Progressive this morning. It's on other websites around the country. You can read that. Number three, prohibit the transfer of offensive military equipment to police departments. In other words, end Reagan's 10:33 program. By the way, Obama had ended that program, and Trump reinstated it. Number four, we need to strip federal funds from any police department that violates civil rights. Uh, number five, we need to pay wages that will attract top tier officers and kind of in line with what Congressman Pocan was saying just a minute ago, have national standards. I think we should have national licensing. And I think the caller who suggested that police officers should carry their own liability insurance is a really good idea because then you've got an, an outside third party, the insurance companies. This is what doctors do. I mean, why is it that doctors have to pass a standardized exam? Doctors have, you know, there's, there's basically two categories of people who ha- literally have your life in their hands, who have the power to kill you, intentionally or accidentally. Police and doctors. And, and I, I suppose you could toss nurses into that category, but, you know, it, it fits. Doctors have to have liability insurance. It's called malpractice insurance. Why don't cops? Well, because of qualified immunity, by and large, but let's do away with that and have them insure themselves. And then the insurance companies will say, you know, you've been you've you've beaten up three people. You're, there's no way we're going to give you insurance. They don't have insurance. They can't work anymore anywhere in the country as a police officer. It's not in Bernie's list, but I, I think it should be added. He says provide funding to states and municipalities to create civilian corps of unarmed first responders to supplement law enforcement. This would be uh, social workers, EMTs, trained mental health professionals. This is to deal with low-level conflicts, require agencies to make records of police misconduct publicly available, require all jurisdictions to establish independent police conduct review boards, civilian boards, and give them the authority to report to federal, to federal authorities types of abuse. This is from Frederick Douglass. Essentially our quote for the day. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation, Bill Barr, Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are people who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both. But it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. To recap what we're seeing all across the United States, share some pieces from uh, Sean Hubler and uh, Julie Bozeman's piece on this. In California, an officer sitting in a police car in Viejo shot and killed a 22-year-old man who was on his knees with his hands up. He had a hammer in his uh, sweatshirt pocket. And they thought it was a gun, uh, or at least that was their excuse. Uh, you know, I, I, I think we have to give them the benefit of the doubt on that, but still shooting. In Texas, a 20-year-old protester shot in the head by police officers in Austin with what's described as non-lethal beanbag ammunition has been left with brain damage and a fractured skull. Cell phone videos show New York City police officers beating unarmed protesters and sideswiping demonstrators with open squad car doors. I am calling on Governor Cuomo to walk back his comments yesterday uh, basically in defense of these police and for that matter, Mayor Bill de Blasio as well, and both of you guys, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio, if you can't, you know, if you're afraid to take on the so-called police union, in most cases, these aren't actually even unions. In many, many cases, in fact, in probably in most cases, uh, you, know, they, they, you know, they're, they're not unions. They're, they're protection rackets run to protect bad cops. If you're afraid to take on the unions, the police union, Resign. I don't care how liberal or democratic you are. Resign if you're afraid to take on your own cops. You're supposed to be in charge of them. In Atlanta, a half dozen officers have been criminally charged after a violent attack on two college students sitting in a car during protests. On live television, police officers in Louisville, Kentucky, fired pepper spray balls at journalists. We've got basically what we have are police riots all over the United States. To the best of my knowledge, there was virtually no looting or anything like that by protesters yesterday, but we had considerable rioting all across the United States by police. We are looking at police riots in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Miami Herald reporters filmed officers who were shooting a nonviolent protester in the head, fracturing her eye socket and leaving her screaming and bloody. In Kansas City, Missouri, the police walked onto the sidewalk to use pepper spray pepper spray on protesters. In Buffalo, police officers in riot gear shoved a 75-year-old man to the ground and walked away as he lay unconscious on the sidewalk with blood coming out of his ear. Two of the 15 officers, presumably the the, the first one who shoved him and the second one who, who tried to who stopped a third officer from from bending over and maybe helping the guy. Uh, Those two have been suspended, but 15 different officers walked by this guy as he lay bleeding unconscious on the pavement until finally a National Guard person said, hey, wait a minute. In North Carolina, a lawyer or rather a North Carolina lawyer compiled a gigantic thread. I retweeted this, a gigantic thread of clips of police rioting against civilians. 281 separate clips from different cities all across the United States. We are in full-blown police riot mode. You got, you've got Donald Trump, the president, who said to a police officers association, when you take somebody into custody, rough them up. You've got Bill Barr, the attorney general, who spoke to a police association, and said that if communities, which I would suggest was code for black communities, aren't going to respect police officers, maybe they shouldn't have policing. Not a verbatim quote, but the essence of what he said. Trump is, has, has, treat, has tweeted that the assertions by the media that tear gas and rubber bullets were used to clear The uh, area in front of St. John's Church, right next door to the White House, were uh, lies and fake news. So the headline of the day award goes to the Washington Post. This is their headline. God bless them. White House says police didn't use tear gas and rubber bullets in incident that cleared protesters with chemical irritants and projectile munitions. Meanwhile, Bill Barr came out and said, there was no correlation between our tactical plan of moving the perimeter out by one block and the president's going over to the church. So California Senator Kamala Harris says, I invite Bill Barr to say this in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which she serves on, by the way, under oath. Right, well, that ain't going to happen. And meanwhile, an advocacy group, bought thousands, tens of thousands of face masks to send to uh, protesters in New York City, Minneapolis, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., from a company that makes custom masks with slogans on them. This slogan says, stop killing black people. The company made them. The company packaged them and delivered them to the post office. The company attached to those packages a postal receipt so you could track the package. They never arrived. The post office officially says they were intercepted by law enforcement. Right. The Justice Department, led by Attorney General Bill Barr, has taken an aggressive posture against demonstrations and on Thursday expressed concerns about extremist agitators. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And frankly, my call would be to disband these so-called police unions all across the country and some of the police departments. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees' distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
3: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
4: Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Revolutionary Love by Michael Lerner, a political manifesto to heal and transform the world. This is from the introduction. We Earthlings need to build a fundamental change of consciousness into ourselves and in every part of our national and global society in order to achieve the economic and political changes necessary To prevent the destruction of the life support system of earth in order to end global and domestic poverty and wealth inequality to defeat racism sexism homophobia and other forms of xenophobia to protect human rights to achieve social economic and environmental justice and to achieve lasting global peace this new consciousness is possible and can emerge through embracing revolutionary love the struggle for a caring society And a new bottom line in all our economic, political, legal, educational, and cultural institutions. This manifesto is written to show you how this can happen and how you can help make it possible. Liberal and progressive movements need to move beyond a focus on economic entitlements and political rights to embrace a new discourse of love, kindness, generosity, and awe. These are not some new-agey, smile-and-be-nice formula or let's-get-into-self-transformation-before-we-change-society kind of thinking. I'm calling for both our American and global societies to embrace a new bottom line so that every economic, political, societal, and cultural institution is considered efficient, rational, and or productive. Not according to the old bottom line of how much these institutions maximize money, power, or ego, but rather how much they maximize love and generosity, kindness and forgiveness, ethical and environmentally sustainable behavior, social and economic justice. This new bottom line seeks to enhance our capacity to transcend a narrow utilitarian or instrumental way of viewing human beings in nature, so that we respond to other people as embodiments of the sacred, instead of thinking of them primarily in terms of how much they can serve our interests and also so that we can respond to nature not solely as a resource for human needs, but rather through awe, wonder, and radical amazement at the beauty and grandeur of this universe. I call this new consciousness revolutionary love, and its goal is to create the caring society, caring for each other and caring for the earth. The vehicle to create this new consciousness we will call the Love and Justice Movement, and eventually the Love and Justice Party, The revolutionary possibility of love is the kind of love that breaks through those distortions of consciousness that make it difficult to implement a national environmental policy or to end the many forms of oppression that permeate our world. To really embrace revolutionary love requires us to develop a strategy way beyond anything currently being given serious attention in the media, the political parties, and even many of the social change movements. And it requires us to move beyond what seems realistic in terms of the contemporary frame of discourse. Yet there is no alternative if we're to solve the environmental crisis and prevent our society in the coming decades from moving further and further into reactionary nationalism and repression of our own humanity. We need a global mobilization of billions of people to solve the problem. And this manifesto outlines the first steps to making possible such a mobilization. To understand the urgency, let's consider our current environmental crisis. In 1992, thousands of scientists issued a collective statement warning of the impending dangers to the life support system of planet Earth. 25 years later, in December 2017, 15,364 scientists from 184 countries signed a new statement that reads, in part, Since 1992, with the exception of stabilizing the stratospheric ozone layer, humanity has failed to make sufficient progress in generally solving these unforeseen environmental changes. And alarmingly, most of them are getting far worse. Especially troubling is the current trajectory of potentially catastrophic climate change due to rising greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels and agricultural production, particularly from farming ruminants for meat consumption. Moreover, we have unleashed a mass extinction event, the sixth in roughly 540 million years, wherein many current life forms could be annihilated or at least committed to extinction by the end of this century. Humanity is now being given a second notice. We are jeopardizing our future by not reining in our intense but geologically and demographically uneven material consumption and by not perceiving continued rapid population growth as a planetary driver behind many ecological and even societal threats. By failing to adequately limit population growth, reassess the role of an economy rooted in growth, reduce greenhouse gases, incentivize renewable energy, protect habitat, restore ecosystems, curb pollution, halt defaunation, and constrain invasive alien species, humanity is not taking the urgent steps needed to safeguard our imperiled biosphere. End of quote from the scientists. The book is Revolutionary Love by Rabbi Michael Lerner. Tom Harvin here with you, and on the line with us is Dr. Robin Cooper, the president of Teamsters Local 502, the Commonwealth Association of School Administrators. The website is local502casa.org. I see noted here that you are the first woman and the first African-American to lead this union, the Commonwealth Association of School Administrators. First, could you tell us a little bit about the Commonwealth of School Administrators?
5: First of all, thank you for having me. We are the only administrators' union in the entire state of Pennsylvania. We're made up of approximately 700 administrators from principals, assistant principals, climate managers, food service workers, early childhood. We go on and on. Uh, We have one employer, that's the school district of Philadelphia, and I represent their needs.
4: I I understand that uh, your group, I believe it was, uh, today held a silent march to protest the murder of George Floyd and denounce racial injustice and inequality, do I have that right?
5: Yep, we had a a march on yesterday, it was called Gasping for Breath, Justice and Change. And we really wanted the families, our school families, to understand and know that we denounce racism in its strongest form. And we wanted to be there for our families and really to provide, you know, just a a strong stance to let children know that we're here to talk to them about some of the turmoil that they're going through because we recognize racism and we want them to know that we recognize it. So we don't want to be we didn't want to be the silent elephant in the room.
4: It seems to me that in our schools, there are kind of two levels of issue here to address from an administrator's point of view which you're reflecting there are, there are this you know how the school is structured and one piece of that I live in Portland Oregon uh, our our school system has just said we're no longer going to have police officers in our schools i've been speaking out against police officers in schools for you know as long as it's become a fad here over the, at least the last decade on this program but then there's also the issue in the classroom with the teachers and even the conversation, not just of teachers and not just conversation, the actual instruction about racism and the history of racism in the United States to students, but also the interactions between students around the issues of race. Can you speak to, uh, to all of that?
5: As school districts around the nation, have we've become so focused on, you know, teaching to the test and everything is about the test. So most uh, educators, their days are filled up with reading and math, and that's it. So, you know, social studies would have been a perfect opportunity to really talk in depth about racism. And, you know, there just doesn't appear to be time for it. But I just think with so many things that are going on, you know, uh, social studies, you will be able to have current events. You would be able to talk about these issues. And because all of that is by the wayside, children's they, their individual needs are not being met to express themselves, who they are, and really to... Um, Channel their energy in a positive way and feel affirmed that somebody hears and somebody is talking to them about these things. I mean, we're not just talking about the death of George Floyd. We're talking about the death of Rihanna Taylor. We're talking about the death of, of Maia Arbery, all which happened in, in the month of May. And so just adding that on to, you know, a COVID-19 where our children are not in school and they're handling all of this, it's difficult for the adults to, to really understand what's going on. But even in the school setting, it would be very difficult to push aside the curriculum to talk about things that we need to talk about and really address. Because here's the reality. Our children are aware of race and they know when there's an injustice being committed. And when people don't talk about it, then you have all of that anger, all of that rage that's going inward. So we wanna make sure that we stand in solidarity with our children to say, we hear you and we wanna talk about this. We have to talk about it.
2: Yeah,
4: I'm old enough to remember in the late 60s when high schools, uh, at least in Michigan, where my wife and I grew up, black studies was required in an all white school largely all-white school. Is there any chance we can return to that? I, I realize Betsy DeVos is not going to be promoting this, but shouldn't we
5: be talking about that? We, 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 we really should. We, we need a well-rounded curriculum that really speaks to all aspects of life. For whatever reason, the only thing that's important in our school district is reading and math, and you have to really talk about some of the major issues. A few years ago in Texas, history books basically said that slaves uh, they enjoyed their lives, that they, they wanted to be slaves, they were well said, and they, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. So we also uh, in returning to it, we have to straighten out the books to make sure it has adequate and accurate information.
4: Brilliant. Dr. Robin Cooper, the president of Commonwealth Association of School Administrators, Teamsters, Local 502, Local 502CASA.org. Dr. Cooper, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's been fascinating. Thank you.
5: You are more than welcome.
4: Robbie in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Robbie, what's up?
6: Yeah, I was wanting to uh, touch base. Uh, Before you uh, do, Robbie. Portland. I have a question for you. Yeah. I know you're real
4: active in progressive activism and whatnot. I'm wondering if you've been to any of the uh, protests or the demonstrations in Portland and have any, any and I, stories to tell us yeah. about them.
6: That's actually what I was wanting to update you on. I've uh, been there uh, Friday at Rosa Parks. Yesterday we were out, and this is actually what I was wanting to tell you is we're getting co-opted right now and there's a lot of stuff on the airwaves i want to tell the liberal listeners about this um my first point is whenever it gets brought up because the news as you know is doing their best to try to say that we're violent protesters we're right. protesting as the they violence. always do by the way right right to delegitimize us and then and mm. my dad is he's taken all this liberal news and uh, we were talking yesterday and he was like what does it do for the cause The very notion of the news making people question what is this doing for the cause is delegitimizing, you know? Yeah. We got co-opted yesterday. There's police plants. This is speculation, but there when you do some research into the people that were leading it yesterday or two days ago, actually, now they have been very close with the police and it wasn't until some people did some more digging that they found out that they're actually kind of, whoever was leading it two days ago on Sunday is a part of the police and they're Mm -hmm. trying to turn it into a parade. They bring out this really weird truck. It's got American flags all over it. Anyway, so remember the, the Blackout Tuesday? Okay, Blackout no. Tuesday was a hashtag that was set up on told. Nobody knows where it came from, but it got called out right away by the real activists. Blackout Tuesday was passed, and they were saying, hey, for all of Tuesday, don't post anything on social media. Just post black squares just post empty black squares and nothing because it's going to mess up the algorithm and then black voices will be heard. That was a lie. That was a lie used by the police. Basically, the activists were like, no, actually, you should be amplifying black voices right now. Use your platform. Tell us about the protest. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to stop the information being spread and shared about where we're going. So
4: basically, they were Uh, saying, don't tweet anything of consequence. Of value, don't tweet anything that has meaning. You know who co-opted and basically destroyed the Occupy movement, particularly in New York City, was the Revolutionary Communist Party. This this uh, cult that follows this guy in New York that is uh, pseudo Maoist, and they started the whole uh, you know talking and talking back, and and uh, no leaders except that all, there actually were leaders, but they were always RCP leaders. Be very aware of that. Do some research into that. When uh, they bamboozled me and, and, a, and a few other people into uh, participating in things yeah, that they were doing, I, we thought that they were a legitimate group. And it turned out it wasn't. I, Robbie, I got to run. I remember the communist. Th- thanks for the call. Okay. Yeah, keep your eyes open. <music> Minneapolis City Council President Lisa Bender said, that they are rethinking their police department. First of all, she's retweeting another member of the council, Jeremiah Ellison, who says, we are going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. And when we're done, we're not simply going to glue it back together. We're going to dramatically rethink how we approach public safety and emergency response. It's really past due. And then Lisa Bender, the president of the council, of the city council, says, yes, We are going to dismantle the Minneapolis police department and replace it with a transformative new model of public safety. And that is real change. We'll see, right? Hold your breath. But the school board, by the way, in Minneapolis voted unanimously to terminate their $1.1 million a year annual contract with the police for so-called school resource officers. About 40% of schools in the United States now have armed police, actual police officers in their schools. Something certainly never happened when I was growing up. I mean, and the, and the outcome of this is that our children, particularly children of color, uh, particularly black children, are being criminalized, entered into the criminal justice system. And the same thing is happening here in Portland, by the way. Portland has said no, no more cops in our schools. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey Kenyatta, what's on your mind today?
3: My father told me when I was a child to listen very carefully to what a man says. And the only thing that speaks more loudly than his voice is his silence. As everyone in the country is having this kumbaya moment, it's still only us meaning black people in america dying we're the only ones bleeding and that leads me to ask you this question with regards to the collective silence why is there no discussion about black defense forces let me give you an example of What i'm talking about you notice that on uh, tribal lands that they don't get killed by the police you know why because they live there they're in their own communities You're not likely to go and abuse somebody, and you've got to live next door to them. What I'm talking about is something that affects me, not you. And white people all over this country, you guys can sit there and proselytize and come up with all this other stuff that's rhetoric you want to. I'm saying that if black communities that are predominantly black, they should police their own. I'm talking about white people don't live in these communities. Why are you there? And you sat up on your own program and talked about it a few days ago. You said that when you were in Georgia, you know, doing some police training, that you had guys that said, hey, we'd go over there and crack heads for free. That's yeah. the reality of it. You know, I asked you on a previous program some years ago when we were doing the same thing. Go back through the years, Tom. The same thing over and over again. And you said, and I asked you the question, are black people American? And we got into this really heavy discussion about whether or not, you know, the law part of it. Well, if you're born on American soil, I'm not talking about those nuances. Clearly, we are different, way different, because we're the only ones dying at the hands of the police. And finally, I want to say this to you, Tom. You are aware of the CHP officer. Uh, I know you are. The clip of the CHP officer that beat a woman to a bloody pulp, a black woman on the freeway with gloved hands. This man is about 250 pounds. Here's the reality. You know, all this window dressing, I'm sick of it. You know, our white people, if you see me, and I'm 6'3", about 200 pounds, sitting on top, straddling your daughter, your wife, one of your women, and beating her with my hands to a bloody pulp, a defenseless woman, you're going to tell me you're going to go march, Tom? Is that what you're going to do?
4: this is a point that not only am I making, lots of people are making, That 94% of the Minneapolis Police Department does not live in Minneapolis. Are you suggesting that only black officers should patrol black
3: neighborhoods? Predominantly black ones, yes. And in general, police officers should live in those neighborhoods. You are less likely when you live, you know, most of the LAPD, they live in a place called Simi Valley. They call it Topland okay, which is about 40 miles north of Los Angeles. You understand, you see this repeated, this pattern all over the country, because they specifically go in to, as you put it in a previous uh, program, knock heads. That's what they do. You're less likely to do that when you know I'm a few blocks away from your punk ass. You understand? That's what I'm talking (laughs) about. I absolutely do, and I agree. I guess the corollary to that would be that you're
4: suggesting that white officers should patrol white areas. I mean, if we're going and I know you have a background in policing, if we are committed to going back to community policing, where people feel like the people who are serving them, not just policing them, are accessible, are part of their community. Isn't that an opportunity for diversity, for people to have the experience of diversity as well?
3: I I, I think so. I think so. But I but but I I am. I'm good. I'm getting back to this. My point is, is that you are going to act a lot differently. I'm going to act a lot differently if I'm in your community. First of all, I have a vested interest in that community as opposed to I'm a million miles away and I just go. Why are you there? Why? Yeah, Yeah, I I, I completely agree. I, you know, we talked about this the other day, and I'm going to say this real quick because I don't know if you're coming up on a break or not. We but only we have 10 seconds Okay. We talked about police cars being black and white. You know what some white person said to me? Well, that doesn't mean hmm. anything. Uh, uh, that, that's just the color of the car. Well, why, are, why is that the color of the car? Why? Given the history. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Why not blue? Yeah. I get it. See? Kenyatta, thank you. It's always good talking with you. Our book today is, uh, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence by Kristen Goadzee. And this is from the introduction titled, You Might Be Suffering from Capitalism. The argument of this book can be summed up succinctly. Unregulated capitalism is bad for women. And if we adopt some ideas from socialism, women will have better lives. If done properly, socialism leads to economic independence, better labor conditions, better work-family balance, and yes, even better sex. Finding a way into a better future requires learning from the mistakes of the past, including a thoughtful assessment of the history of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. That's it. If you like the idea of such outcomes, then come along for an exploration of how we might change things. If you're dubious because you don't understand why capitalism as an economic system is uniquely bad for women, and if you doubt that there could ever be anything good about socialism, this short treatise will provide some illumination. If you don't give a wit about women's lives because you're a gynecophobic right-wing internet troll, save your money and go back to your parents' basement right now. This isn't the book for you. Of course, some might argue that unregulated capitalism sucks for almost everyone, but I want to focus on how capitalism disproportionately harms women. Competitive labor markets discriminate against those whose reproductive biology makes them primarily responsible for childbearing. Today, this means humans who get pink hats in the hospital and the letter F next to the name on the birth certificate as if we've already failed by not coming into the world as a boy. Competitive labor markets also devalue those expected to be the primary caregivers of children. Although societal attitudes have evolved in this regard, our idealization of motherhood means that most of us still believe that baby needs mama a whole lot more than papa, at least until the child is old enough to play sports. Others will argue that unregulated capitalism is not bad for all women. Yes, for those women lucky enough to sit at the top of the income distribution, the system works pretty well. Although women at the executive level still face gender pay gaps and remain underrepresented in leadership positions, on the whole, things aren't too shabby for the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. Of course, sexual harassment still hinders progress, even for those at the top, and too many women believe that if you want to run with the big dogs, you may have to suck it up and ignore the groping and unwanted advances. And race plays an important role as well. White women do a lot better in aggregate than do women of color. But when we look at society as a whole, on average, women are comparatively worse off in countries where markets are less encumbered by regulation, taxation, and public enterprises than they are in nations where state revenues support greater levels of redistribution and larger social safety nets. Choose your data source and you find the same story. Unemployment and poverty plague women with children. Employers discriminate against women without children because they might have them in the future in the united states in 2013 women over the age of 65 suffered from poverty at much greater rates than men and dominated those in the category of extreme poverty globally women face higher rates of economic deprivation women are often the last to be hired and the first to be fired in cyclical downturns and when they do find employment bosses pay them less than men when states need to slash government spending on education health care or old age pensions mothers daughters sisters and wives must pick up the slack diverting their energy to care for the young, the sick, and the elderly. Capitalism thrives on women's unpaid labor in the home because women's care work supports lower taxes. Lower taxes mean higher profits for those already at the top of the income ladder, mostly men. But capitalism was not always so savage. Throughout much of the 20th century, state socialism presented an existential challenge to the worst excesses of the free market. The threat posed by Marxist ideologies forced Western governments to expand social safety nets to protect workers from the unpredictable, but inevitable booms and busts of the capitalist economy. After the Berlin Wall fell, many celebrated the triumph of the West, consigning socialist ideas to the dustbin of history. But for all its faults, state socialism provided an important foil for capitalism. It was in response to a global discourse of social and economic rights, a discourse that appealed not only to the progressive populations of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but also to many men and women in Western Europe and North America, that politicians agreed to improve working conditions for wage laborers, as well as to create social programs for children, the poor, the elderly, the sick, and the disabled, mitigating exploitation and the growth of income inequality. Although there were important antecedents in the 1980s, once state socialism collapsed, Capitalism shook off the constraints of market regulation and income redistribution. Without the looming threat of a rival superpower, the last 30 years of global neoliberalism have witnessed a rapid shriveling of social programs that protect citizens from cyclical instability and financial crises, and reduce the vast inequality of economic outcomes between those at the top and those at the bottom of the income distribution. For much of the 20th century, Western capitalist countries also endeavored to outdo the East European countries in terms of women's rights, fueling progressive social change. For example, the state socialists in the USSR and Eastern Europe were so successful at giving women economic opportunities outside the home that initially, for the two decades after the end of World War II, women's wage work was conflated with the evils of communism. The American way of life meant male breadwinners and female homemakers. But slowly, socialist championing of women's emancipation began to chip away at the leave-it-to-beaver ideal. The Soviet launch of Sputnik in 1957 spurred American leaders to rethink the costs of maintaining traditional gender roles. They feared the state socialists enjoyed an advantage in technological development and why women have better sex under socialism. Tom in Media, Pennsylvania. you got the last minute of the show, Tom. What's up?
3: I always thought that you were a strong union man. And now it seems that you want to take away collective bargaining rights, decent wages,
2: increasing- Many of these police unions, Tom, all across the country are not
4: actually operating. Tom, stop for a second. They're not operating under the Wagner Act of 1935. They're not all incorporated as unions. Many of them are called police benevolent associations. They're not actual unions. Yes, I'm all in favor of unions. But, you know, if power of a union is being abused, whether it was the power of unions and like the union that my father belonged to, the machinist union back in the 1950s and 60s, that was excluding black people from the workplace in Lansing, Michigan, or whether it's police unions that are protecting killer cops, those unions need to be subject to some oversight as well. And Tom, these unions, these police unions, if you want to call them that, are protecting killer cops. And everybody in America knows it. We've all figured this out. It's not a secret anymore. Hey, thanks so much to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Ants, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky for helping us make this program work. And thank you to you for participating.
3: You've been listening to Tom Hartman.